Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Criminal Mischief with Carolyn and Brandon. You're listening to Episode 67, an update on the Gilgo Beach murders. First, I'd like to thank law enforcement who have been dedicated to working on this case. I very much appreciate your efforts on behalf of these vulnerable victims. I'm here to speak for my mom, Maureen. I was only seven years old when my mother was murdered. Her loss drastically changed the trajectory of my life. There are countless times I needed her and she was not there. I remember she read to me every night and now I can no longer remember the sound of her voice. I wish she was here today, but she was taken from us. For years, it looked like there might not be charges filed against any suspect for the murder of my mother. While the loss of my mom has been extremely painful for me, the indictment by the grand jury has brought hope for justice for my mom and my family. I owe so much to my mom, and I know that she would want me to speak out for her in this process and let everyone know who she really was. Even though it was difficult for me, I'm doing this because I want her to be remembered as the loving mother that she was. Thank you. That's Maureen Brainerd Barnes' daughter, Nicolette. She was just seven years old when her mother was murdered. Nicolette is speaking about her mother at a recent Suffolk County press conference. After the district attorney, Rex Tierney, announced that Rex Heuerman, who had been considered a prime suspect in her death, had been formally charged with the murder of her mother, Maureen Brainerd Barnes. This past summer, Heuerman was charged in the deaths of Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello, victims whose remains were recovered near Gilgo Beach back in 2010. Heuerman has pleaded not guilty to the murder charges. At this news conference, Suffolk County District Attorney Ray Tierney would lay out the latest murder charge and also some damning new DNA evidence, which we'll cover later in the show. The biggest uh, change is the DNA evidence, uh, and we've received uh, significant DNA evidence between the time of the first arraignment and this time, uh, which I'll synopsize for you uh, at this time. We've always spoken right from the very beginning. We spoke about the five hairs of significance that were recovered from uh, three of the four burial sites of the women. Uh, so I'll just go through that. That uh, And uh, we earlier reported on mitochondrial DNA evidence as to three of those hairs. We now have uh, nuclear DNA results for all five of the hairs. So I'll, I'll go through it. So after this recent press conference, Brandon and I would discuss this very complicated case with retired homicide sergeant Bill Cannon. And he's going to help us walk through the investigation and what comes next. All right, cool. There we go. So we're not going to do a big uh, formal introduction because we'll we'll write something out and make it make it all nice later. So we'll, uh, let's just get into uh, let's get into a conversation. Well, um, Bill, first too, let's start off with how you would like us to refer to you in the show. Sure. My name is uh, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired NYPD homicide sergeant. I did almost 27 years on the NYPD. I retired in 2011. I'm a 9/11 responder. I spent 16 years in the detective bureau. Bill also co-hosts the show Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories podcast. But first, we're going to briefly review the investigation for those who aren't familiar with the case, whose victims have become known as the so-called Gilgo Four. This is a complicated case, so we're going to start when Suffolk County realized in 2010 that a serial killer was operating in their community after the body of Shannon Gilbert a 24-year-old woman who was working as an escort 
was found in the area of Gilgo Beach. Shannon went missing under extremely suspicious circumstances in the early morning hours of May 1st, 2010. Her driver had taken her to Oak Beach, which is a private gated community near Gilgo Beach. Shannon went there to meet a client at his home, and to this day, it's unclear what happened to her after she called 911 while still in Oak Beach, saying that she was in danger. One thing to know about the Gilgo Beach area is that it's a desolate stretch along Ocean Parkway that's undeveloped. It's the kind of place that's so dark at night, you can see headlights coming from a mile away. An ideal place for a serial killer or killers to hide victims. The terrain is rugged, thick with unforgiving brambles, miles and miles of marshy vegetation, and deep, swampy, mosquito-infested pools. Shannon would never return home that night from Oak Beach. Her loved ones would report her missing from the place that she'd last been seen, near Gilgo Beach, where she'd called 911 for help, saying that someone was after her. On May 13, 2022, Suffolk County Police would release 911 calls made before the disappearance and death of Shannon Gilbert. Her harrowing call would last more than 20 minutes. I'm Detective Lieutenant Kevin Byra, the commanding officer of the Suffolk County Police Homicide Section. This video was made to explain the circumstances surrounding the three 911 calls made on the day Shannon Gilbert went missing. The full, unedited 911 calls are available, and I encourage people to listen to them in their entirety. Portions of the call taken out of context will sound sensational. During the early morning hours of May 1st, 2010, Shannon Gilbert, a Craigslist sex worker, and resident of Jersey City, New Jersey, traveled from Manhattan to meet a client, Joseph Brewer, at his home at 8 The Fairway, Oak Beach, New York. Shannon was driven to Oak Beach from Manhattan by her driver, Michael Pack. Neither one was familiar with the area, neither one had been there before, and neither one had met Brewer before. Pack waited in the car while Shannon was inside with Brewer. Pack was her de facto security. At 4.51 a.m., while at Brewer's house, Shannon called 911. This call lasts for more than 21 minutes. At times, Shannon is speaking calmly, but slurring her words. At times, she is not responsive, and at times, she is screaming. State police? Yeah, there's somebody after me. I'm sorry? There's somebody after me. Where are you? There's somebody after me. Okay, where are you? There's somebody after me. Where are you, ma'am? I don't know. Are you driving right now? No, I'm inside the house. I'm sorry? I'm inside the house. What house? I don't know. Can you trace where I am? I'm sorry? Can you trace where I am? No, I can't. In her 911 call, you can hear her fleeing on foot through the neighborhood. She would knock on the doors of two homeowners, and then she disappeared. After she'd been reported missing, family members and friends didn't feel like the Suffolk County Police had taken her disappearance seriously, and her case went cold. Until her disappearance would make headline news, on December 11, 2010, a police officer named John Malia was training his canine partner, a cadaver dog named Blue, along Ocean Parkway in Gilgo Beach. The officer knew that that was the location where Shannon Gilbert was believed to have gone missing. That day, Blue would find a set of human remains, which, given the circumstances of Shannon's disappearance eight months before, many believed it was Shannon. 
but it wasn't. The remains would later be identified to be those of Melissa Bartholomew. Two days later, police officer Malia and Blue were called back to the area. They were tasked with finding any evidence related to the recovered remains. And within a half an hour, three other sets of human remains would be recovered nearby. Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. These four recovered victims would be referred to as the Gilgo Four based on where they were found and how they were all placed similarly in burlap sacks. It was clear to law enforcement that this was believed to be a cluster site of a serial killer who was targeting sex workers. Maureen had gone missing in 2007, Melissa in July of 2009, Megan in June of 2010, roughly two months after Shannon's disappearance, and Amber the following September. Additional searches in the area would reveal more victims. Seven other bodies, which included Shannon Gilbert. They would also recover a baby and a man. These other victims were not intact and wrapped in burlap, like the Yogo Four. Some of their skeletal remains were found in pieces. They were believed to be dismembered, which led law enforcement to wonder if this was the work of two serial killers operating in the Gilgo Beach area. There's 11 bodies in, in the Gilgo Beach case. Going back to like 2007, one actually going back to 1997 of a woman named Karen Vergata. But they're not sure that all of these bodies are connected. They know that the Gilgo Four, which is what the arrested perpetrator, Rex Ewerman, has been arrested for, they, he's been now indicted for four murders known as the Gilgo Four. The victims, the Gilgo Four, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Bartelome, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello, they are the Gilgo Four. Now, the commonality to these women is that they were all sex workers. And that becomes a big part of this investigation because some of what they considered to be the corruption of this case had to do with the fact that they felt that the culture of the police out in Suffolk County did not allow them to view these escorts, sex workers, if you will, as important enough to put as much work into it as they would have if it was John Q, Jane Q citizen. The family members of the identified victims were desperate for answers and justice for their loved ones. Who did this? The FBI would offer to help with the investigation, but that offer of assistance would be met with pushback from Suffolk County's top cop at the time, James Burke, who was leading the Gilgo Beach investigation. They had a police chief named Burke who had some corruption problems himself and had some personal problems and some drug problems. And No, he's out, but he got arrested right recently now, for he? a morals charge in a park involving uh, oral sex with another man. And he was recently arrested. And But he had, he had completed, I believe, almost five years in federal prison. But he got his pension, too, before he got sentenced. So that the case languished because he was running it, among other people. And because of his nefarious activities, he didn't want other outside police agencies investigating the case. So he kicked the FBI off the case, who had, as you know, the FBI has tremendous resources and they have some talented investigators. So he didn't... Uh, he didn't want them involved because perhaps it would have uh, 
uncovered some of his activities in regards to the overall investigation. And the investigation stalled. In 2015, Burke's pass would catch up to him. He would resign ahead of his arrest for beating a handcuffed man suspected of stealing pornography and sex toys from his department-issued SUV. Burke would be sentenced to 46 months in prison. And for years, the case still continued to languish. In 2020, the first female commissioner of Suffolk County, Geraldine Hart, would attempt to reinvigorate the case and public trust by asking for help, releasing photos of a key piece of evidence, pictures of a belt with the initials WH or HM embossed in the leather. At the time, they didn't say that this belt had been tied around Maureen Brainerd Barnes's body. Then Commissioner Hart would say, quote, we do believe that the belt was handled by the suspect and did not belong to any of the victims. At the same time that the photos of the belt were released, a new website was also launched by the police department. They would say it was a place for people to share tips and to receive updates about the investigation. Skeptics would question the timing of the transparency. Their news conference was held the same day that Netflix released an online trailer for the movie Lost Girls, which was inspired by the story of Shannon Gilbert's disappearance. Well, one of the things that you said in your show that really resonated with me is you said how powerful the media is and how you wish that the early investigators would have tapped that as a resource to spread the word because that belt that had been wrapped around Maureen Brainerd Barnes' body was basically had the initials, I don't know if it's HW or HM, which if that would have been circulated wide, more widely, you know, would, would they have gotten, you know, people coming in sooner? Like this wouldn't have languished You know, one so of my long. favorite expressions is that the media can be your best friend or your worst enemy. And um, it's very true, but that's very powerful. You know, it's like put something out there and it's that like that expression people say in New York City ad nauseum. If you see something, say something, you know. Now put something out there to millions of people rather than, you know, to, to keep it insulated to just the people that are investigating this case that know about it. Who is that helping? It's the, And there, there's, there's a thing in police work sometimes where they keep things secretive when they don't have to. And when you can get the help of the public, or you can get the help of other people. And that's, it goes back many, many years. We used to call some detectives on the NYPD that would purposely do that. We used to call them secret squirrels. You know, they wanted to make the splash with their information and do everything. Say, oh, look what I did, you know. How about sharing it with everybody so we can utilize all the personnel and all the thinking heads that we have here to see if we're going in the right direction. Unfortunately, the release of the belt and the website wouldn't move the investigation as they hoped. But everything would change in February of 2022 under the new leadership of Suffolk County Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison, who announced the assembly of a brand new task force, the best and the brightest to work on the case. Here's an interview with Police Commissioner Harrison with PIX11 News. And uh, I reached out to uh, the FBI, I reached out to the uh, state troopers, um, I reached out to the sheriffs to see if they could uh, help us putting a task force together and uh, see if we could, and I use this phrase quite often, 
put a, 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 a broader net out there to mm-hmm. see if we could expand and cultivate uh, a potential witness that can help us out with the investigation, as well as we're working with the uh, Suffolk County District Attorney's Office yeah. that's going to help us with the prosecution as well. You know, people, Commissioner, have been fascinated by this case for almost a yeah. decade, right? Wasn't the FBI, though, originally involved in the investigation? So what happened there? Why did they actually stop? And are they back now involved with your new fo- task force? Yeah, so Dan, they were they were they were part of the of the, the investigation. Then, for whatever reason, um, they were uh, removed or, or asked not to participate. Listen, whatever happened before is not going to happen yeah. in the future. I think it's important that uh, we work with all of our our partners in law enforcement to get the job done and and identify the individuals involved and hold those those people accountable. This task force was a much needed fresh set of eyes taking a look at every piece of evidence, interview, investigator notes, and beyond. Let's talk about the task force that was established. You said they were like super superheroes, you know, like within 12 months, they had this, I mean, it's not solved and he still will have his day in court, but there's some pretty, I mean, a lot of, a lot of evidence here to overcome from just the 32 page document that we've seen connecting yes, him to the victims. Um, what happened was um, there was a, um, police commissioner before Rodney Harrison. And Rodney Harrison, of course, was the NYPD chief of detectives and uh, the chief of department, which is the highest ranking uniform member of the service for the NYPD. He was hired at Suffolk and he followed a police commissioner by the name of Geraldine Hart, who was a lawyer and a FBI agent. She was the one that released the belt, the picture of the belt. And it didn't really stir up a lot of uh, information, but it was it was a good thing that they put it out there to be a little more transparent of some of the evidence that they had. Now, when Rodney Harrison um, got there, he established a task force with District Attorney, Suffolk County District Attorney Ray Tierney. And these task forces are f- famous, the NYPD. They got a big investigation, established a task force, you know. But in this task force, it was a multi-tiered task force with the FBI, the New York State Police, the Suffolk County DA's Office Investigators, Suffolk County Detectives, and a pretty um, well-thought idea of using the Suffolk County Jail investigators to help out in the investigation. So there were five law enforcement entities. And you might ask, well, how's the jail investigators? uh, I should call it corrections, Suffolk County corrections. Well, these women that were the Gilgo Four, they were escorts. Escorts get arrested, right? And where do they go to? Well, they go into the jails. What are they doing while they're in jail? Well, they're talking to each other. Maybe the investigators should talk to them and see if anyone knows anything about this case or knows anything. Some of the other escorts that have been talking about this six foot six inch man who was identified as his ogre 12 years ago in a case with uh, Amberlynn Costello. And another huge snafu there was a vehicle that they had, a Chevrolet Avalanche that was identified 12 years earlier. Well, not identified, but was mentioned but they would never had it identified. When they established the task force, a female detective from the New York State Police found the car, ran the car and found Rex Schumann's name and that it belonged to a man named Rex Schumann who lived in Massapequa Park, who was an architect who also had an office in Manhattan. And then this big thing, when you know you start an investigation, you can't see me on the screen, my arms are way out, you start, start moving in 
opening closer. <laughs> yeah. And they found out who he was. Now they started digging. Then they started finding out things like burner phones, right? They found out about Amberlynn Costello and the, um, the boyfriend that allegedly saw Rex Human 12 years earlier. Um, all of these things were coming out and the task force discovered this stuff in the first two months. And this evidence that they had in the case folders languished for 12 years and nothing was done about it. We spoke about when we heard about this six foot six inch ogre that lived in Massapequa that drove a um, green Chevy Avalanche. Well, why don't they canvas the Long Island Railroad Station in Massapequa Park? Maybe they'll see this six foot six inch ogre and this green Chevy Avalanche. But I mean, it sounds so simple now that we know who it was and we know where he lived and we know the dots have all been connected. But before that, you question why wasn't these things done? And I don't doubt that the, some of the original detectives did some good work on this because look, the evidence has survived 12, 13 years. They collected the evidence pretty damn well, right? But they made some huge mistakes. And yeah. when they pulled up a photo from Google Earth, they saw the Chevy Avalanche from next to his house, parked there from years and years ago. They go, here's the car. Look at it. It was there. It was it was hiding in plain sight. Sarge, let me ask you something real quick. You, you mentioned four or five different entities that were that were working this together. Something that Carolyn and I have run into a lot is a lack of interagency kind of reciprocity or they're kind of remiss to share information because maybe they want right. the collar or they want the glory or they want the whatever. Or just so who would be in charge? Like who would be, where does the buck stop with all of well, those agencies? Well, you know, happen? in this case, culturally from my perspective, and I don't know if it works this way in Suffolk County, the Suffolk County Police Commissioner should be running the investigation. However, it looked like on this case that he shared power with the district attorney, which is sort of a recipe for headbanging and uh, disagreement and, you know, a lawyer <laughs> and a cop. Uh, some, some cops are lawyers, but uh, they, they don't necessarily always agree. However... Well, it yeah. sounds like they've agreed on this. I mean, there's been stranger bedfellows and what they've been doing is amazing. And I can't, you know, as you were explaining the whole thing, I just was getting so angry because I've watched a few shows on this and the family members who would have vigils and who would, you know, look at us, pay attention to us. We want to find out what happened to our loved ones and, and to find out all this crap that was going on in the background um, with Burke and just the whole investigation. It's like, it, they shouldn't have had to go through No, this, but you know something, you know? it's almost like, uh, I agree, but there's also also like hindsight, it's twenty twenty, you know? And the attorney for the yeah. um, Shannon Gilbert, which her case was probably the catalyst that really got this investigation going in the right direction. Yes. She was the one with but the But I don't tape? think she was killed by Rex Schumann. I don't think anyone does. Whether she was even murdered or not, they can't decide upon. Hey, Criminal Mischief Nation. The new year is a great time to refresh your mindset. Let's face it, my New Year's resolutions always seem to center on exercising and eating right. Okay, and I'm base. I want to get into that super cute outfit that's just a little bit too tight. 
And here's the thing, what's great about knowing myself is that even while I'm in the throes of a resolution frenzy of I can do anything mindset, I know that the reality is a little bit different because when I get busy throughout the day, maybe skip lunch, then by dinner, I'm hangry, which means I have no problem justifying going for the quick and easy, empty, meaningless carbs that I'll regret later. But it's a new year, new me. And this time around, I've got Factor. Factor is a ready-to-eat meal delivery that absolutely takes the stress out of meal planning and sets you up for success in the new year. You're skipping the grocery store, prep work, and cooking fatigue, which is a real thing. Instead, get chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. And with over 35 meals to choose from per week, there's an option for everyone. Keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more. Factor's two-minute meals are your secret weapon. Restaurant-quality meals that are flavorful and nutritious, all delivered right to your door. And guess what? If you head to factormeals.com slash mischief50, that's M-I-S-C-H-I-E-F 50, and use code mischief50 to get 50% off. That's code mischief50 at factormeals.com slash mischief50 to get 50% off. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I want to take a minute to go a little deeper into the backstory of that green Chevy avalanche that Bill was just talking about, as it would turn out to be a critical piece of evidence. A police officer on the task force had been poring over the files, and she sees a statement from Amber Costello's friend, Dave, buried in a report. Dave would tell police to look for a guy, a man he refers to as an ogre with bushy hair and big eyeglasses, that he was between 6'4 and 6'6, and that he drove a green Chevy Avalanche. That this was a client of Amber's who'd shown up at her house when Dave was there, how he'd left in a hurry after Amber and Dave pretended that he was the angry boyfriend, and then Amber kept the client's money. A text stored in Amber's phone would corroborate this story because this same man had texted her later that day asking for a second chance. Dave would tell police that Amber disappeared shortly after that incident, that he didn't know the name of the guy or have any contact information, but he definitely knew the vehicle, a green Chevy Avalanche. He was like, find the vehicle and you'll find the man. And the task force would do just that. It would turn out that a green Chevy Avalanche would be registered to a Rex Hewerman, who lived in Massapequa, Long Island. Hewerman was 6'4", 280 pounds. He had bushy hair and big eyeglasses. Investigators immediately began digging into Hewerman's personal and professional life, scouring his digital footprint. They were comparing it to the cell phone records of the Gilgo 4 victims. Based on the women's cell phone activity, where their cell phones had pinged off nearby cell towers before their murders. They believed that the killer lived on Long Island and commuted into Manhattan. 
that he used a series of burner phones to connect and ultimately lure his victims. As it would turn out, Hewerman lived on the quiet tree-lined suburban streets of Massapequa Park that he'd lived in the same house where he grew up as a kid. His residence was just 15 minutes away from Gilgo Beach. On the outside, Rex Hewerman appeared to be a successful architect who commuted into the city from Long Island. He had a wife, Asa Ellerup. The couple had been married in 1996, a second marriage for them both. Asa had a son from a previous relationship, and together, Hewerman and Ellerup had a daughter, Victoria. During the investigation, phone and travel records would reveal that Asa had been out of town on the dates when the murders of the Gilgo Four occurred. She had been ruled out as a suspect. Is that believable that she knew nothing? <laughs> to me, it's not. And I mean, I don't know if she was complicit in his crimes, but she certainly must have ignored a lot of things. Ignored him going out at night, ignored his activity, ignored, you know, the guy was a freak. You know, if you look at his computer searches, the guy was searching child porn, sadistic porn, you know, does that not come out in your personality? Or you, you know, father knows best at the dinner table and then you go to your back room and you're this sadistic sexual sadist, you know, uh, I think that's got to show somewhere. So to think that I, I'm not buying that she totally had nothing to do with this, at least a tacit approval. I don't know if, uh, I, don't, I don't believe that she would is that, is that well, criminal? No, I don't think so. But, uh, you know, yeah. this, 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 this case is too complicated to explain in an, in an hour, you know, or 45 minutes. <clears throat> but, yeah, of course, she, you know, they, people are always like, oh, they found her hairs on it. But look, that's, that's not a smoking gun. You, you lose 50 to, to 75 hairs every single day in your house. You know, it's all over the place. This, it's called trace evidence. So, if, if an item like a burlap bag is sitting somewhere and your hair's there, it's, your hair's going to be on it. And if that's used to tie someone up in a murder, your hair's on it. That doesn't mean you had anything to do with it, you know. But at the same time, you know, I, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know what her mental state of mind is or was, uh, because apparently, and, and I spoke about, I think I spoke to this um, when I spoke to you on the phone, Carolyn, that the police said the house was unlivable. It was disgusting. It was like a hoarder's paradise. It smelled. It was, they couldn't stay in there for more than 15 or 20 minutes when they were processing the crime scene. That's how disgusting it was. And these were years. I had Does some high-ranking police official told me this. Yeah. The fact that Asa Ellerup was out of town when the murders occurred is important because out of the five hairs that were collected from the remains of the Gilgo Four, four of them would be determined to genetically match Asa and their daughter Victoria. Based on this evidence, Rex Hewerman would be arrested on July 13, 2023, for the murders of Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. But what about Maureen Brainerd Barnes? Court documents released at the time suggested that Hewerman, in the future, would also be charged for her murder. We spoke to Bill just after those charges were announced on January 16th. So to catch everyone up to speed, it was just announced that Maureen Brainerd Barnes, who was considered to be one of the Gilgo Four, and she was in the charging documents, but they didn't have enough to add her as a fourth victim attributed to That's Rex Hewerman, allegedly, right? So now they've just announced that he is yeah. on the hook for and When he four. was arrested in July, and they were very confident that they were going to be able to present this case, but they wanted to 
cross their T's and dot their I's and make sure they had the evidence very uh, solid re-Maureen-branded bonds. They announced that they did have that. And as well as they upgraded some of the evidence that they had. During that recent press conference, Suffolk County District Attorney Ray Tierney would discuss the latest murder charge. He would also reveal that the fifth hair recovered from Megan Waterman matched Rex Huerman's DNA. Uh, with regard to the male hair, that again, that was the we received the mitochondrial uh, DNA profile with regard to that. The nuclear DNA profile on that was um, uh, 1.48 times 10 to the 169th power as to, to come from someone sharing the same genetic profile as uh, the defendant. And he would explain why they had delayed the fourth murder charge. At the time, we thought it was necessary to take the case down. We had completed three out of the four in investigations, with Maureen Brainerd Barnes being the fourth that we did not complete. One of the main reasons why we didn't complete the, the Maureen Brainerd Barnes uh, investigation is because we knew we had this hair. And we were awaiting, uh, among other things, we were awaiting the result of that, um, that nuclear DNA uh, uh, result, which uh, didn't occur at the time of the original takedown. So that was the main reason. At this press conference, Maureen's sister, Melissa, would speak about the profound impact her sister's murder has had on the family. 13 years ago, Maureen was found murdered after she went missing for three and a half years. Throughout these years, I had continued to hold on to hope that one day there would be justice for Maureen and that whoever took Maureen's life would be held accountable. Today is another important chapter in the long pursuit of justice for Maureen. It has been 16 years since the last time I saw my sister, 16 years since I heard her voice, because 16 years ago, she was silenced. Losing Maureen has become a wound that never truly heals. It remains a part of me. Maureen was a mother of two amazing children, and they will forever be without their mother. Maureen was my older sister who was always there for me when I needed her. Maureen was inspired to be a writer and she loved reading books. She was only 25 years old. She had her whole life ahead of her. Maureen would never get the chance to show the world how talented she was. My family will never get the chance to know who Maureen would be today because her life was tragically taken. Throughout these 13 years, my family has painstakingly endured Maureen being judged and marginalized. Maureen was more than how she has been portrayed. She was first and foremost a loving mother, a caring sister, and a giving friend. With the loss of Maureen came unimaginable pain and panic. My life shattered with the confirmation of Maureen's death. Due to the experience of my sister going missing and being found murdered, I would suffer from PTSD. I would overthink every situation I deemed a threat because the worst possible thing in my life has happened. I became guarded. I overprotected the ones I loved around me because I knew firsthand that evil exists in this world. I want to ask everyone to please remember the victims, Maureen, Megan, Melissa, and Amber. I hope that everyone will also remember the other victims from whom charges has not been filed against any suspect. These victims had families. They were human beings with aspirations and hope for a better future for themselves. They have families who love and miss them, 
Maureen, Melissa, Megan, and Emma are no longer here to speak for themselves, and I am glad the family members of other victims are continue to speak out for their loved ones, and I support them because they know their loved ones best, and they miss them more than anyone will ever know. Thank you. The work of the task force is far from over. They are still investigating the seven other human remains found at Gilgo Beach. We said at the very beginning that we were going to take a comprehensive look at the Gilgo Four cases. I think we've done that. Uh, we've completed that. Uh, we used the grand jury process. Now we move to the second phase. The second phase being the prosecution of these four cases, as well as continuing to use the grand jury to investigate the other cases, the other bodies, and the other murders, which we think are uh, investigatively significant. And we're certainly going to do that. We're going to use the same methodology. We're going to use the grand jury. And uh, if we, we come to a result in the time, and when the time is appropriate, we'll have uh, further uh, comment on that. Three of those victims are still unidentified. One set of remains is referred to as Asian male. The two others, a female toddler known as Baby Doe, and her mother, who for now is called Peaches, in reference to a tattoo on her body. When do you think this is going to go to trial? And what do you, do you have any kind of predictions as to what's going to happen with just from your sources and just kind of the other victims that they're trying to tie to him? Like, what, do you, what, what do you what see I the future? See, uh, I see that they got a really solid case against him. Because I don't think that Shannon Gilbert he has anything to do with. I don't know. Karen Vergata, I'm not sure. That's another case where the head was found here, the torso was found, you know, so it's it's all complicated when it goes back so many years. You know, and Rex Schumann is now 60 years old. Do we think that he just started doing this 12 years? No, I think he's been doing it for a long time. He could have many other bodies in other places that we don't know about. This is what I think will be the best case scenario. They take him to trial, he gets convicted, and hopefully they'll try each case individually because then you get, you know, get another bite at the mm-hmm. apple if something goes wrong, right? He gets convicted of all four cases. He's not going anywhere. He's got prison for the rest of his life. Right. What does he have to trade? We don't have a death penalty in New York State, so they can't hold that over his head. Right. What does he have to trade? Rex, all we can give you is better uh, amenities while you're in prison. That's the only thing we could do. So- why don't you come clean and tell us the truth? At that point, an attorney, his attorney may say, cooperate. You, you know, you got, you're, you got, you're going to be in prison for the rest of your life. And that's how I think they'll be able to come up with more cases, which a lot of times serial killers want to talk once they know the game is up because they've already got, and they love the notoriety. Well, and if you look at his search history, it he's looking up serial killers. It's almost like he wants to... You know, maybe it was driving him crazy that he didn't get caught. Because why would you wrap one of your victims in a belt that could identify your family, yeah, I mean, your lineage, he, well, right? You know, he did a lot of stupid things, but he, I have a, a co-host with me that always uses the term consciousness of guilt. And he did a lot of things that was showing that he was guilty, like trying to cover his, his back, you know, using burner phones. Searching the internet yeah. to see where the investigation big... was going, trying to delete his searches on his computer. Sergeant, how many times do you see that kind of shit, right? Where it's like they arrest somebody who just murdered someone and the day before they had Google searched how to dissolve yeah. a body, right? I mean, that shit happens. People, all people the are time. amazing. Like all uh, the, time. The, the case of uh, the Adelson family in Miami, that uh, I don't know if you know the case, but 
the, the family conspired to kill their daughter's husband, who was a, a law professor uh, in, in, in Tallahassee, Florida, because of the um, custody battle with her kids. So the mother, and they're all affluent people. The son was a periodontist. The father's a dentist. Wealthy people. They conspired and they hired two hitmen through the uh, Charlie Adelson, who's the, the periodontist, to his girlfriend. And they murdered him in 2014. They shot him to death. And now they're going down one at a time. The two shooters went to prison. The girlfriend went to prison. Charlie Adelson got convicted, life without parole. And they just arrested the mother, who's 73 years old, Donna wow. Adelson. And she's going to be facing trial. She's probably going to get life too. And now Wendy, who was the wife, who they all did this for the little princess. They killed her husband. She's next. She hasn't been arrested yet. And then, of course, the father could also wind up getting arrested. So everyone could go down. And they did so many stupid things for educated people. They spoke on the phone all the time to each other. And so recorded. And that was a big basis of Charlie Adelson's trial, them just playing the tapes with him talking to his mother. Well, do you think that they get, because Brandon and I have talked about this quite a bit. We were just talking about it. Do people just, and my feeling was, People get so caught up in the moment of whatever rage or jealousy or anger that they're feeling that it makes sense and they have to do it immediately, you know, and so they're not really thinking critically is, is what, what's your take on that? I think that most criminals aren't very smart. That's, yeah. that's ding, 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 ding. Yeah. And, you know, of criminals. to yeah. think that you can just also become a criminal because you think you're smart. It's like you can't uh, defeat someone in that arena that does that for a living. You know, it's like, I always love when we'd get some smart lawyer coming in who was a defendant and he thought he could, uh, you know, defeat the detective in, in the box, you know, and thought he could talk. And even though every lawyer knows not to talk, but he's so smart, he's going to show this right. high school educated or college educated detective that he's going to match his word. And the next thing you know, he's got his hand behind his back and he's going to jail because, uh, he thought he was so smart, you know? So you know, it's hubris. Right. When you say things like burner phones and internet searches and vehicles and Google Earth and all of that, I, it always fills me with the same thoughts that, was it just really, really easy to commit crimes 150 <laughs> years ago? Could people I think just get so. away with shit you know? all the time? Is that why characters like Sherlock Holmes were invented to kind of soothe people's fears that there's going to be a smart person who will solve these crimes? Because you could just fucking get away with well, whatever you wanted. One of the biggest things these days, of course, is video all over the damn world. Everywhere you go, you cannot. Everywhere. How did that change police? Tremendously. How did that change It gives policing? you a start and it gives you a timestamp. The next court date is scheduled for February 6th. I wanted to end this week's episode with the words of a woman I consider to be a hero, a champion of women and minorities, attorney Gloria Allred who's proven to be a tireless crusader and advocate for victims. Her high-profile legal battles have led to landmark, precedent-setting court decisions. Currently, she's representing the victim's loved ones in this case and lays out perfectly why cases like these are so important. They have asked me to represent them as their victim's rights attorney in this case, and I'm honored to support them. 39 years ago, I was contacted by a sex worker named Rhonda DaCosta in California. 
She performed that kind of work because she needed the money to support herself and her young child. She had met a man named Daniel Zabuski and agreed to provide him with oral sex for $30. But he wanted to rape her and sodomize her, and she alleged that she said no, but he did it anyway. Then he stole money from her. Zabuski was charged with rape, sodomy, and grand theft. Zabuski's criminal trial was held in Pasadena, California, in front of Judge Gilbert Austin. But before the jury could decide the case, the judge dismissed it. He stated to the Pasadena Star News, quote, the law was set up to protect good people. You, my wife, my daughters, my granddaughters. It doesn't protect a street-walking prostitute from a contract gone awry. This case shouldn't have been filed. A whore is a whore is a whore, end quote. It was at this point that Rhonda contacted me. I was appalled by the judge's comments. This case wasn't about contract, it was about rape and every woman's right to say no. Judge Alston had in effect declared open season on prostitutes. Rapists and those who beat and murder prostitutes could interpret this to mean that they now had a license to rape, beat and kill because of the criminal justice system which would not be there to protect prostitutes or give them access to justice. The judge seemed to be telling rapists that if they committed crimes of sexual violence against sex workers, that the law would protect the abuser by denying the victims access to the courts. Evidently, at that time, sex workers were not entitled to protection of the law from acts of rape and sodomy. I mention this case today because the suggestion from Judge Alston seemed to be that sex workers are not good people. That notion is dangerous to women's lives, whether or not they are sex workers. The courthouse door should never be shut to any woman who is victimized by gender violence. No man has a license to hurt, kill, or do anything else to a woman without her consent. And as I predicted 39 years ago, after the judge made his comments, Zabuski went on to rape, beat, and assault a number of other women. Finally, he was sentenced to a term of 80 years in prison, in other cases, after Rhonda. I was successful in filing a civil case against Zabuski for Rhonda over the objections of Zabuski's attorney, and a different judge allowed me to continue litigating the case for Rhonda. However, sadly, Rhonda passed away, and therefore, we never went to a civil trial. The point of what happened to Rhonda is that failing to afford sex workers access to justice sends a message to men who victimize them that the victimizers may never face consequences for their wrongful and criminal acts. This is 2024. Will there be justice for women who just needed some money to help support their children or themselves? It is long overdue to provide justice for vulnerable women who are missing and murdered. It will be for the jury to decide if this defendant will be found guilty of the murder of Maureen, may she rest in peace, and the murder of other women for whom the defendant has been indicted. We look forward to a fair trial for the defendant and justice for Maureen. Before I let you go, I wanted to not only thank retired Sergeant Bill Cannon for sharing his insights with us, but also recommend his podcast, Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. And as always, Thanks for listening. From Cloud 10, Criminal Mischief is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, 
Music by Soundstripe. I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.